Hi, and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. This week, I'm delving back into the serial killer stories, which I don't think I've touched on in a while. So, this is the story of John Haig, also known as the Acid Bath Murderer. So as always, I guess for now, for the next 11 weeks, before we begin, just a reminder, CrimeCon is coming up. Woo! Woohoo! And our 10% discount code is CrimePod. Is it? Yes! yes. How do you still I not remember this? All uppercase CrimePod for 10% off. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's It's... Coming quick, stuff started arriving in the post that we've ordered, which is exciting. Um, and we've started speaking to some of the other people going. So, yeah, we're looking forward to it. But as the code is CRIMEPOD in full caps. Not what yes. I was trying to say. Yeah, just don't listen to me. Listen to Caitlin and we'll hopefully see you there. Um, but I guess, shall we just begin this week's episode? And as always, I will ask Caitlin, have you heard of it? Well, this I hadn't heard of John Hay. I was like, I don't know what she's talking about. And then you said the acid bath murder. And I was like, I know who she's talking about. So oh. I'm intrigued because I definitely know the name of the acid bath murder. But then, do you know, when you hear of these like like serial killers that have like a nickname or like, do you know, it's like if you actually ask somebody like, what's the Yorkshire Ripper's name? Yeah, you're like, it's Mr. Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah, <laughs> Yorkshire <laughs> space a Ripper. Yeah, like, and it's the same, like, you know, you, you sometimes don't remember their actual name. But you remember, like, the name that the media gave them. Yeah, well, half the time as well, like, shock horror, but the Moors murderers, I know who they are. And half the time, though, I'm like, oh, who is it again? But yeah, you can see, you know, it's Myra. Yeah, exactly. It's Myra. It's <laughs> Myra. That was Maz. <laughs> anyway, so I'm glad you've heard of this one. <laughs> but um, I had heard of it too, but... A lot of it I also hadn't known, so I'm going to delve a wee bit deeper. So I'll just begin. Uh, John George Haig was born on the 24th of July, 1909 in Lincolnshire. And also, I know it's 1909, Caitlin, but please note, this is not just a Victorian case. I was okay? like, here this... we fucking go. Yeah, no, this is not a Victorian case. He was obviously born in the early 1900s, so. He can't help that. Now, the family moved to West Yorkshire, where Haig then spent the next about 24 years of his life. He was brought up in a very religious household when references to the Lord were used very frequently to remind John that he was always observed by higher and disapproving deity. John himself claimed that his childhood, it was just bleak and it was lonely. His only friends were his pets and, you know, he sometimes cared for the neighbour's dog. A tall fence around their, their house was also put up by his dad because it kept out prying eyes on any and any social contact with the outside world. John's parents belonged to a religious sect known as the Plymouth Brethren. They were purist and anti-clerical, which I had to Google, and I think it just means that the clergy, they, they don't really have one because you know how when some religions get very political and involved in all of that. Yeah, so yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, Bible stories were the only form of entertainment and even participating in sports of any kind was forbidden. Now, according to John's dad, the world was evil 
and the family needed to keep themselves separate, hence the fence. His father had also told him that the blue blemish, say that fast three times, blue blemish on his own head had been the result of him sinning in his youth, which John, he took it as the truth because obviously it's coming from his dad. And so when he was younger, he became obsessed and also quite terrified in case he also developed a similar sign of the devil due to the slightest misdemeanor. But he was also told that his mum had no mark because she was an angel. All in all, John didn't really have a popular childhood. He couldn't really go out to play or watch TV or do anything that a child would just class as fun. I say TV, it's it's 1900s, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Now, he did get piano lessons, which at first he wasn't a huge fan, but I think he went on to really enjoy it. And he got really good. He enjoyed classical music and he went to shows with his parents to listen to it. His piano playing also later on in life helped him with regards to what he does later but I'll briefly mention it when we get there. Now as you can imagine he wasn't a huge fan of his religion but I don't believe he ever admitted this to his parents however he also may not have admitted it to himself until he was older because as a child you kind of go along with the resounding the surroundings you're brought up in and you think it's normal. One thing though was that John was brought up to fear God and not feel comfortable in him feel confidence, sorry, comfort. All these words start with C, but he felt no comfort in God, which I believe most religions that include a God, they're there to bring people comfort. They're there for hope, just a sense of belief, not to have the absolute fear drilled into you. Now, as part of this fear... Well, exactly. Sorry to jump in, but yeah, I hate that whole, like, the fear. You're you're literally putting the fear of God into somebody. Which isn't mm-hmm. what it's meant to be like. You're meant to, like, you know, have God as a kind of person to speak to or do whatever, not be absolutely terrified that God sees you doing stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. And part of like part of this fear, possibly subconsciously, John had reoccurring nightmares every single night. And he would dream of being in a forest instead of trees, though. They would all be crucifixes. And as he was walking through the forest, it would then start to rain. However, when he looked up, it appeared that it wasn't actually rain, but it was blood. So it was raining blood. He would then look around and all of these crucifixes would turn into trees and he would actually be in the forest. And then all of a sudden, these trees would start oozing blood. He said that he would find himself suddenly frozen still. He couldn't move, he couldn't speak, he couldn't make any noise. And then he would see this man emerge from the forest who's holding a cup and he's going to each different tree and taking a bit of blood that's pouring out of these trees until the cup is full. When this man got to John, he would then force him to drink the whole cup of blood. Like, this nightmare is rough as hell. That's giving me the fucking fear. Yeah. That's actually making me feel so nervous. It is a very, it's, it's an awful nightmare. And, like, I've had many nightmares, but that's one of those ones that you have in your childhood that you will never forget. Like... It's awful. Especially if it is, that's that clear fear of his like religion though. Like that honestly is some sort of like biblical terrifying thing, which is not what religion is meant to be at all. Um, So I think, Jesus, that sounds awful. Mm -hmm. And like you've just done as well, if you analysed it or someone properly analysed this dream piece by piece, you would point it back to how he felt about his religion. Now, there was quite a turning point though, 
when John was about 10 or 11 years old, he realised there was ways to get around his parents' strict religious rules, and he began to lie. Nothing serious at first, just little white lies here and there to test the waters, such as reading a kid's book instead of the Bible. And as soon as he realised that nothing was going to happen to him, there was no consequences and he hadn't been tarnished with this blue blemish on his head, he then started to think, hmm, I can get away with this. So John had been told all his life that God was watching, he was seeing, he could do, he could see everything he was doing and you will be punished. However, he's committed sins and nothing's happened. So That's wild, especially after like his nightmares and shit that he actually went on to commit the sin. I'd be too feared. Yeah, me too, to be honest. But he went on and did it, tested the waters, and he now feels like he's been lied to. So he now thinks, okay, maybe there is a God, but he just doesn't care what John's doing. Or maybe this whole religion thing revolved around a lie and maybe his parents were just forcing him into it because they wanted him to behave a certain way. John decided that the first chance he got he was going to leave the church but for now he just had to act like the part his parents wanted him to because you know he'd be punished or he could even be kicked out of his family if he didn't or if he said anything about like against his religion so he went along with it and he made sure he looked the part. John kept up the sinning though because now things aren't as they are so he can get away with it and so even at school he wouldn't study because he didn't want to and he didn't he didn't read the books because again he didn't want to however he was one of those very lucky naturally smart people so he didn't fail his lessons or anything like that when he left school and got his first job he was an apprentice at a mechanic he did the same thing as before he made himself look as though he was doing the work but he didn't do it because he thought oh there's no consequences however obviously the real world soon hit him hard and well you can't do that in your adult job especially a manual one because if you're a mechanic you need to produce results such as a car that no longer is broken so he didn't like not being able to fake that job so he eventually left and decided to become a salesman he was made to be He was absolutely made to be, sorry, a salesman. He was charming. He could talk his way out of and into anything, as well as talk people into anything. But not just that, he could now pretend like he was busy at all times without actually doing anything. When he did do the bare minimum, he was a natural at it. He was a born salesman, one would say. Now, John enjoyed his job and he started to make his way up the company and became well respected. This all satisfies John for a while until it didn't because he always wanted more. He wanted what he couldn't have, and so he began to steal from his job to feed this luxurious lifestyle that he wanted. There was a little tin of cash that was kept in the office, and John began stealing just small amounts of money from it, and when no one even noticed or realised any money had gone missing, he would then up the amount every time. Eventually, though, people began growing suspicious, and when this was reported to the higher-ups, As much as they didn't want to fire John because he was the best one that he had, they couldn't have someone someone stealing from the company. So he was let go. John, though, he didn't want to start from the bottom again. He wanted the big wage right away without having to work for it. And so he decided, I'm just going to start my own company because then no one could fire me. He did underestimate how hard it actually was to start his own company because, you know, you need employees, money, clients, etc. And so whilst concocting a plan, he had to stay at his parents' home 
and was back in the very strict Christian role that he had to play. Thankfully for John, he didn't have to play it for too long because in 1934, he met 21-year-old Beatrice Hammer, who was four years younger than him. Beatrice was a very headstrong lady and she also had money, which is what John was looking for. He knew that if he was to marry Beatrice, then he could get out of his parents' house, which is exactly what he did on the 6th of July, 1934, when they tied the knot. Now that they were married, they were expected to have children. But with Beatrice having money, John wasn't stupid enough to not know that this wasn't enough money to live his luxurious lifestyle, set up a business and bring up children. So one particular day, sorry, John was reading a newspaper when he read an article about a local man that had been scamming car dealerships for a long period of time. John read this and took it as inspiration because although this man in the paper hadn't gotten away with it, John thought that maybe he could because he saw himself as smarter and better than everyone around him. So John set about this plan to scam all of these car dealerships and make some quick money. John would pick up a fake name from the phone book by mixing up first and last names and he would go to the car dealership and say, you know, my name's Robert Smith and he'd buy a car on finance. He'd hand over a deposit because obviously that's much smaller price than buying the car outright. The dealership would then set up a monthly payment plan for him to pay the rest of it off. However, when the payments were being missed and the dealership was coming to collect payments from him, he obviously didn't exist and so they had no links to the car. And by that time, John had already sold it and made a profit. John did this successfully a fair few times. He made thousands of pounds doing this and was quite successful in doing so. Until, of course, the police came knocking at his door and John was then sentenced to 15 months in prison for fraud. Whilst in prison, Beatrice realised she was pregnant with a wee girl, but knowing that John was in prison and that she couldn't care for her alone, she decided to give her up for adoption. Leave John, as she claimed to have no idea of his criminal behaviour, sold their house and moved on with her life. John was pretty much ostracised from the family. They said that they would never speak to him again until he can repent for his sins. So at the age of 26, John was released from prison because he, but he no longer had a wife or a home. He went back to live with his parents, who in the end were willing to forgive him and take him in as long as he was there to work on repenting his sins. Now, he was an only child. They absolutely loved him. Obviously, they didn't treat him greatly with love, but at the end of the day, it was his son, so they did bring him back. And also his parents wanted to get him back on track with his life, and so they loaned him an amount of money to set up a business with a friend. John and said friend were going to set up a dry cleaning business and it was actually doing very very well until a tragic incident happened and John's business partner got hit by a car and died. John's life on the straight and narrow pretty much came crumbling down after the loss of his business partner because he couldn't keep the business on his own and so he had to sell it. John had had enough of doing things the right way, the legal way, because when he did it still didn't work out, so why bother? After selling the business, John decided to go back to the life of crime and to help him with this, he moved away to East London. Whilst there, he met a man named William McSwan, who was around John's age. William's parents, Donald and Amy, were very wealthy, which also included William. 
They owned many properties, amusement parks and businesses, so they had a lot of wealth. The McSwans hired John as their driver and also due to his mechanical background, not that obviously he did much of it, he also did odd jobs around the amusement parks for them. Through this job, he became really good friends with William and after work, they would meet up and they would go to the pub together. William didn't so much as work, but he did go around collecting rent on his parents' properties from them, so kind of like a landlord. John's original plan was to steal off of the McSwans. However, he did become really close with them and decided he didn't really want to do that anymore. And so he quit his job and kept them as friends because they could probably provide him with quite good opportunities. And they had many connections, so why wouldn't he? After quitting that job, he went on to commit more crimes, though, for money by opening up a solicitor's office. He is not a solicitor and he does not have any qualifications at all to do this, by the way. But he takes some very small cases like divorce proceedings. And John decided to use the name of an existing, well-respected solicitor firm. And he pretended to be a branch for them so that people would automatically trust him with their affairs. By doing this, he stole all of their customers and once they came to him, signed like a client agreement, etc., they paid an initial fee. He would then close the office, which was his plan from the very beginning. He had no intention of being a solicitor at all. He did this process quickly as well so that, you know, folk didn't even have time to get suspicious. And by the time they realised they no longer had a solicitor, they'd been scammed. They couldn't do anything about it, sadly because John was elsewhere doing the exact same thing. Oh, it's just the worst, isn't it? Like, I feel like scammers are one of the fucking lowest to the low, but you always feel so sorry for people once they click, but there's just nothing you can do. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, whilst on his third solicitor office, John started another make money-making scheme as he was getting away with everything. So he thought, hell but I can do more now this time he began posting ads in the newspapers saying that he was selling stocks and shares for lower than market price he was doing this because he had clients in his solicitors solicitors firm which is all made up remember who had since passed away and the shares had fallen into their estate the thing was though that these deceased clients did not have anyone to go to and so they were given to John. Since John now had these shares he can now sell them for lower than market price which everybody would jump at the chance of buying them because you're practically already making a profit because if he's selling them at a discount and then the market value is more than that then sell them and you've made a profit right away. So people would arrange to give John the money for the shares, you know, send it on to him. And he said he would then send them their share certificate, which he obviously never did because he didn't have any to begin with. I would also like to clarify, this wouldn't happen nowadays because there's so many rules and regulations in place. However, scam artists do find a way and they can get people really easily. So always treat everything as suspicious until proven otherwise. And a real company will not take offence if you treat them as suspicious. And that is a little bit of advice from Samantha. Thank you. Anyways. That was lovely. That was really nice. Thank you. You're welcome. But I move on. By doing this, John made around £200,000 through the solicitor offices and selling the non-existent share certificates. However... 
John has made a mistake here because the stocks and shares scheme was much easier for the police to trace because once people realised they'd been scammed, the police could contact the newspaper and asked who placed the ad, which then pointed them straight to John because he didn't use an alias. So, 28-year-old John Haig was arrested and sentenced to four years in prison, which he was stunned by because he thought he was getting away with everything. Whilst in prison, he spent his time concocting a new plan on how to make quick money without being caught. John was then released from prison a year earlier than originally thought, though, because World War II has kicked off around this point and the country was trying to save money and resources and they needed more workers and soldiers. And so, you know, they were letting out the lower category prisoners that weren't. I was so confused there because I was like, what is she classing as World War II? Then I was like, oh, it is actually World War II. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Do you know that World War II? Yeah, <laughs> like I thought you meant like oh World War Three was breaking out, and I was like oh I wonder what's happened. Like I've obviously missed a bit. And then I was like oh no, it's the actual war. Yeah. I've ever got where the early nineties. I'm like oh what's happened? <laughs> yeah, no. So the actual World War Two was breaking out, and so lower category prisoners were released because they weren't really classed as harmful to the public and, you know, there's an actual war going on. Now, once released, John put his plan in action by first getting a job as a fireman because that would make him look like he was earning an honest living. You know, he was a good citizen and a very respectable neighbour. Now, even after all of this, though, John found himself back in prison for being caught for breaking and entering. There isn't really much information on this, but it was probably to steal and make money. Now being back in jail, it didn't deter him for his money making ideas and he and a few of his fellow inmates would rush to the mail room as soon as the mail got delivered, steal and hide as many letters from other inmates and hold them for ransom until they got paid by the inmates for their own letter. Now it was eventually broken up by prison guards and they were no longer allowed to go into the mail room. John now has even more time to think of a new scheme or think of a reason as to why he has been caught. And in conclusion, he realised it was because he was leaving people alive and witnesses behind. So the answer to stop this from happening is to kill his victims and leave no traces of them behind. John began doing some research on how he can go about successfully doing this. And thanks to the prison library, He started reading all about previous crimes, which is just crazy to have a prison full of criminals and give them ideas or show them where they went wrong and how they could do it better next time. Now, John started reading about one particular killer from France that would become his inspiration, Georges Alexandre Sarre. And I'd also like to apologise to anybody for that pronunciation. Now, like this uh, John, he had committed many fraudulent crimes and thefts, but all of that came to a head when this man murdered his partner in crime and his wife. He committed this double murder and then dumped both of their bodies in a vat of sulfuric acid and waited for this acid to dissolve the two bodies and the bodies were never found again. No trace of those bodies were ever found and this double murder remained unsolved for six years. It would have remained unsolved forever had George's ex-girlfriend not gone to the police and clipped on him. So what did John take away from all of this? 
Well, he could easily do this and not get caught because he will be doing it solo. He does not need nor want a partner in crime, and so no one could ever tell on him. John began researching UK crime and all the laws that came with it while still in prison. He ended up coming to the conclusion that if he was ever to murder someone and there was no body and the police never found a body, then he thought that no one could arrest him for that murder. He interpreted interpreted sorry that law completely incorrectly, by the way, it's not true. His misunderstanding came from falsely translating the Latin terms in the law. So he thought, you know, if there's never a body, you can never be caught. To put his acid theory to the test for when he was released whilst in prison, he was allowed to go to the metal shop and, you know, make things out of soft metals because he was one of the more trusted inmates and he could make things. So in this workshop, there was sulfuric acid in very tiny amounts. And then when he had slowly stolen enough, he got three mice and put different amounts of sulfuric acid in three different flasks. He then grabbed the mice by their tail and slowly dropped all three of them into all three flasks of acid while he waited and watched and timed how long each amount of acid took to fully dissolve the live mice. John timed that and it took roughly 30 minutes to fully dissolve the mice and once it was done there was black sludge left behind. So in conclusion a larger quantity of acid will dissolve a human body in a longer period of time. John was released from prison in 1943, now aged 34, and he was ready to carry out his master plan to make him super rich. As he'd just left jail, though, he had no money or job, and so he had to go back to his parents' house, and then he eventually made enough money to move back to East London. He got himself a flat and a job as a salesman, and one night when he was in the pub, he bumped into his old friend, William McSwan. They got talking and caught up after all these years, and, you know, John didn't tell him he had been in prison or anything like that, and they agreed to start meeting up again. William would often invite John back to his house, and, you know, he became friends with his parents. They would have dinner and drinks and just chat away like they used to. He was a family friend once more. John was happy and loved hanging out with them, but at the same time, he became very envious of their life, especially William, as there was, they were close in age. He also frequently chummed William to collect Amy and Donald's rent, and he was just so jealous of the amount of money they had, he began to hate William, and he was now ready to get to work on his evil murder plan, and William was going to be his trial victim. So to start, John decided to start renting a small basement room slightly over in West London on the opposite side of where he lived so as not to draw attention to his own flat because his neighbours knew him and it would raise suspicion if people saw that William had been there just before he'd gone missing. He then began setting up his workshop which included a wooden bench that he would later dissect bodies on, a bunch of tools and big blue 40 gallon watertight oil drums. Over the course of the next six to eight months, John set himself up a fake engineering company called Union Group Engineering, and he was the director of this company. In order to get hold of sulfuric acid, you had to have a genuine reason to use it, because and it can only be sold in small quantities. So he would write letters to these chemical sale companies and say that he needed it for his engineering business. And it worked because he was good at faking documents. He was a forger after all. 
Throughout this whole time, John remained close with William and his parents to keep gaining that trust. Then, in early September in 1944, William mentioned to John that he had a few broken pinball machines at one of the amusement parks, which he needed fixed and asked John to do this for him. John obviously agreed to help his friend and he said that he's just set up a new workshop which could be helpful and that he should come and visit it, which William agrees to do. So John takes William into his basement and they were talking for a while about the pinball machines and how he could fix them there. And then John waits to catch William off guard when he turned around to pick something up off the floor. And when he wasn't looking, John picked up a heavy lead pipe from the workbench and launched himself at William, beating him to death. John then proceeded to rob William and took his wallet, all of his money, his checkbook, watch, cleaned himself up to make sure, you know, there was no blood on his hands or body and clothes. And then he popped off to the pub for a drink. Whilst at the pub, he planned the rest of his evening on how he was going to disperse of his best friend's body. He returned back to the basement and put William into one of the 40-gallon oil drums. However, before doing so, he slit William's throat, filled a cup with blood and drank it. He then got ready to do the final step by putting on protective gear and slowly poured the acid into the oil drum. The fumes were so powerful that he got lightheaded until eventually he wakes up on the ground as the fumes had fully knocked him out. Luckily for him, he wasn't holding any acid at that time, and so he was fine, and he went on with his time, but he did go out for some air before coming back in. He poured the rest of the acid into the barrel and then shut the lid tight, and he left. John was so full of energy and adrenaline and excitement that he stayed up all night and paced around the room until the next morning when he unscrewed the barrel and looked inside to find that same thick black sludge that he'd seen when he did the same experiment with the mice. John decided to leave it just another day or two though in case there were lumps in the sludge that he couldn't see because he wanted to make sure that you know it was completely dissolved and he could possibly stink. I can't even imagine like it has to surely. The smell must be so so bad yeah. Now John then took the oil drum and he poured it down a drain in the road in the middle of the night now having got which to let be honest around edinburgh you could not do because they're always so overflown and i know that's the council problem but i'd just like to put that out there anyway having got rid of the body he now had to think of an excuse as to why he has you know why williams disappeared and he's also got to pawn off all of his belongings and make some money with John being a close family friend, he wanted to stay in this circle with Amy and Donald because he was also able to still earn money from them. And so John came up with a cover story that William had intentionally fled to Scotland because we are currently in World War II and William was terrified of being drafted to go to war because he didn't want to fight, which his family were very aware of. And so he's fled to Scotland and will return at the end of the war. His family were, of course, they were shocked. They were upset that he would go and do this without telling them and without saying goodbye. But they understood that this was a big fear of their sons and that as long as John was staying in contact with him and keeping them updated, they understood that it was for the best and so they accepted it. 
John stayed friends with Donald and Amy and they actually became very close because he was very charming, they trusted him and he was their son's best friend and they can't see their son at the moment. They were so close that John would even ask for money to cover William's living costs in Scotland and they would willingly give it to him because they obviously didn't know it was going straight into John's pocket. One evening when John was having dinner over at the McSwan's house, he mentioned that the money was a bit of an issue for him at the moment because, you know, work's been a wee bit slow. Now, that's a fake engineering job. And so they very kindly offered William his, um, offered John, sorry, William's old job as the rent collector, which is exactly what John was hoping for, so that he could pocket a large amount of those checks that people were going to hand him. Now, John happily accepted it and he got straight, he went to work straight away, which is where it then dawned on him. All of these properties was where the big money was at. And these didn't belong to William, they belonged to his parents. John also knew that should the war end at any moment in time, that he wouldn't be able to keep up this Scotland story forever. And so that's when John decided that he had to do something about Donald and Amy McSwan. This time round, though, he was going to be a lot smarter about it all. John knew that he couldn't be inhaling all the fumes of the sulfuric acid like before, and so he bought himself a gas mask along with other protective gear that he can wear so that he does not get it on him and breathe it in. Now, nowadays, you would probably question why someone, why someone buys a gas mask. However, it's World War II, they're obviously common, and they are required. They're also the scary-looking masks that... I don't know if you ever watched this, Caitlin, but remind me of that Doctor Who episode from like 20 years ago. And the boy's like, are you my mommy? Like, it haunts me to this day. And I don't even watch Doctor Who. Yeah, I've got no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, well, other people might, but oofed, gave me nightmares. Now, anyways, John also bought a large steel bathtub and a pump to help him pump the sulfuric acid into the bathtub to avoid it splashing on him. He felt that the process of dissolving a human body would be a lot easier in a bathtub because if there were any chunks that weren't quite dissolving as quickly as he would have wanted, he could fish them out and put them in some fresh acid. Vile. With all of these improvements, John was feeling confident and he was now ready to commit further murders without a carer in the world. And this was all just for money. The next stage, though, before going ahead and killing Mr. and Mrs. McSwan was that he first had to think of a way to get them both into his basement workshop because it's not as simple as asking them round. It's not like they'd be somewhere and they'd be like, oh yeah, we'll just go there all the time. Now, John came up with a plan to lure them both down there one by one. And he told the McSwans that their son, William, who they hadn't seen in forever, because obviously he left without saying goodbye, was actually now back in London, but for one night only. John told them that William had sent him as a messenger to tell his parents that he really wanted to see them. However, if they wanted to see him, they would have to abide by a lot of rules. The first rule was that they had to meet him in John's basement workshop because it was out of the way and no one really knew that John even owned it. It's the last place someone would look for William and so it's the least suspicious. Rule number two was that they had to do it in the dead of night so that no one would see or hear them as no one would even be awake to notice them. Third rule was that they couldn't tell anyone where they were going, what they were doing or who they were seeing. They were not allowed to tell anyone that William was back home visiting. However, they couldn't really tell anyone that he had moved away to Scotland anyway because obviously it's against the law to run away from being called up 
So they'd end up in jail for helping him hide. And, you know, they had to just pretend they didn't know where he was. The fourth and final rule was that they had to come one by one as to avoid drawing any attention to the basement. So now this is the perfect plan to murder two people without any problems and John was ready. He took advantage of the McSwan's vulnerable side of wanting to see their own son who they hadn't seen in ages and hadn't even had a chance to say goodbye to. So in July of 1945, in the middle of the night, Donald is led to the basement room and he doesn't even get a chance to survey the room or look for his son because by the time he enters, John bashes him over the head until he is certain he is dead using a very heavy lead pipe that he left by the door for easy access. After killing Donald, John robs him of everything that he had on him and that was worth something like his wallet and watch. He then dragged Donald's body over to where the steel bathtub is and leaves him close by. John made sure to wash off all the blood from his hands and he made sure he didn't have anything on his clothes that would alert Amy McSwan as he then left the basement and went to get her. The exact same sequence of events happened again with Amy. She was beaten to death with a heavy lead pipe. I don't know if she knew what was coming. I don't know if she saw her husband's dead body or not before being killed herself. John then robs her of everything she had of value, such as her jewellery. So after all of this, John now has two dead bodies he needs to get rid of. He claimed that at this point he felt a lot less anxiety than he did at the first time when he murdered William. This time he was more excited. He was filled with adrenaline and he was loving the fact that his so-called perfect plan was working out so easily. John picked up Donald's body and carried it all the way to his wooden workbench because this time round, John decided that he wasn't going to just dump the bodies into a vat of acid. No, this time he was going to cut the bodies up. Now, the reason for this change was that he had taken notes from his first murder of William and he had noticed that the body had not completely dissolved. There were certain parts of the human body that just didn't because sulfuric acid can't fully dissolve a full-on body in the time that he wanted. Now, William was um, was black sludge, which was full of lumps, and so it was a bit more tricky to dispose of. So if John could put smaller pieces into the acid, then that should hopefully incinerate them easier meaning the disposal will be much easier. John got changed out his good clothes and he got to work. He didn't really have a clue what he was doing or where would be the best place to cut and so it was extremely messy as he was just going to town and hacking bits off left, right and centre and throwing them into the bathtub. Finally, when both bodies were hacked up and broken and put into this bath, John began the sulfuric acid side to his murder plot. As the sulfuric acid wasn't 100% effective with regards to William's body, John decided to mix in a little bit of hydrochloric acid into the sulfuric acid to give it twice the corrosive power than it had the first time. Now, I'm no scientist, so I can't explain anything further with regards to the whole mixing chemicals. In his protective gear, John pumped his acid concoction into the bathtub and watched whilst the bodies of Amy and Donald McSwan sizzled and bubbled until they were completely submerged. John then cleaned up the workshop as good as he could. He then put his normal clothes back on and made sure that all the blood was washed off him. And then he left the basement as if nothing had ever happened. He left Donald and Amy's bodies to dissolve in the bathtub for a few days while he went about collecting all their assets because that's why he did all of this in the first place, greed and wealth. Wasting no time, John went and spoke with the McSwan's landlady and told them that they had gone on a long trip to America 
and that they weren't going to be back for a while. And so they put them in charge of their finances in the meantime. Now, Caitlin, you may be thinking, why would someone think this is remotely true? However, it's 1945, people trusted folk with a lot more and there wasn't mm. really huge amounts of paperwork and rules and regulations and, you know, they weren't in place to deal with someone's affair on their behalf. So it was a great excuse for John to use because everyone in the McSwan's life knew John and they knew of him and they knew that the couple were very close with him. So when he gets put in charge of their finances, it makes sense because he's a close family friend and so no one no one questions it. Whereas I think if you turned around saying I disappeared and you're in charge, people would 100% question you. <laughs> no offence. <laughs> yeah, no, I get you. Now, John then walked into the McSwan solicitor's office and he posed as their son, William McSwan, which the solicitors obviously believed was him because they'd never seen or met William before. They'd only seen his name in writing. So it was a very easy lie for John to play along to. John posing as William then signed over the pretty much all of his family's assets, properties, businesses, absolutely everything over to John Haig, which was himself, but they didn't know that. They thought that this was Donald and Amy's son and their son was doing it on their behalf because they were in America and wanted everything over with their friend John until they got back. After this, everyone is now in, everything sorry, is now in John's name and so he then goes on and sells everything straight away and got an incredible amount of money for it, which was just under £200,000 in today's money. Now John sold everything straight away because he wanted immediate money which is why he's done all of this in the first place and he also did this because he didn't want this coming back to him back to him if anyone was to suspect anything about the McSwans because if John still owed owned sorry any of their assets it would quickly come back to him so he got rid of it all with his newfound fortune John got to spending straight away like it's going out of fashion he starts gambling and living this luxurious lifestyle, even though it's not a bottomless amount of cash he'd got. And he goes to the races, he goes to bars, just everything. John also starts a permanent rent at the Onzo Court Hotel in Kensington, which is a hotel that people live in, but super rich people that mostly come from old money. None of this new money business, as there's people that just have money to burn and it's not going to run out. Over the next three years, he was spending the money well and it was getting lower and lower until eventually he knew that he was going to have to do something to find more money. But he wanted this easily. He didn't want to have to work for it like the normal person. He didn't want an honest job. He wanted money and he wanted it now. John's plan was simple. He decided to go back to that formula that worked for him all those years ago when he would set up a shop, take in all the clients, take their entrance fees, close the shop down, move somewhere else, open up another shop, do the exact same thing before people got suspicious and move on again. With this though, it didn't take the police long to come sniffing around him and he thought that all of this just isn't worth the hassle. It takes effort, it takes time and the police, they're going to be on to me. Because of this, he thought he should just go back to murdering his rich friends. However, the problem was that he had no more rich friends left and he also sold his workshop basement a few months prior when he was struggling for money so he didn't even have a place to kill his victims if he even had one. But this didn't deter John. Instead he went looking for cheap unfurnished spaces just outside of London because they were a lot cheaper 
which is still true to this day. And then eventually he found a workshop in Crawley, which is just outside of London in East Sussex with affordable rent. And so he buys it and moves in all of his murder, moves in all of his murder equipment. It didn't take John long to find his next victim. 49-year-old Dr Archibald Henderson and his younger wife, Rosalie. We're now in 1948 and Archibald and Ros were selling a quite expensive plot of land in London and John inquired about purchasing this plot of land. He applied to purchase it and things ended up falling through, which was possibly part of his plan all along because he doesn't exactly have the money to purchase said land. However, even if with the sale falling through, John now had the Hendersons as a contact and he eventually became friends with them. Whilst gaining the Hendersons' trust and faking his friendship between them, John began preparing for his next murder, and he bought two big 40-gallon watertight oil drums. The reason for this was because he had gotten rid of his last ones due to needing the cash. John also began ordering sulfuric acid in small quantities again to eventually build up enough to dissolve a whole human body. Small quantities because, you know, that doesn't raise suspicion. John then began thinking about how he was going to go on about this murder, how he was going to murder them. At one point, when John was at their house playing piano for them at their party because they had asked him to, he had noticed that Archibald owned quite a few guns and he decided that he had plenty of them. So he's probably not going to notice if one went missing. And so the next time he was round at their place, he stole a revolver and a load of ammunition. This was going to be John's new murder method, as it was a lot cleaner less effort and more of a guarantee that a bullet in the head would mean death instead of hoping that the beating was enough to kill you and not just render you unconscious. Whilst all was in order, John was strengthening his relationship with the Hendersons and he would go to their house for dinner and drinks. He would go to the races with them, they would invite them out and talk business with Archibald. Throughout all of this, he was gaining their trust and becoming genuine friends of theirs, or at least that's the impression they got. With his new workshop in Crawley, it's quite far away to just casually get them out to it. So in, 19, in February 1948, the group of them, all three of them, went on a trip to Brighton, which is kind of like a seaside destination, and it's about 30 minutes from Crawley. Whilst in Brighton, John mentioned to Archibald that he had been working on his new invention, and he thought it could be quite a good business venture for both of the men to go into together as friends and businessmen. John bigged up this invention a great deal and so Archibald, he was sold and he wanted to go to John's workshop and see what it was all about. So this is exactly what they did. It was just going to be a quick day trip and the two men went in the morning and left Ros and Brighton as they were coming back to finish the holiday. When they got to the workshop, John got out a load of fake paperwork, you know, he's good at pretending to fake all that, and said that he'd been planning this for ages. But as soon as Archibald's head was turned, looking at this paperwork, John grabbed the revolver and shot him in the back of the head, killing him instantly. He then did his usual and robbed him of his wallet, a gold cigarette case and any expensive clothing that he had on him. He then carried Archibald's body into one of the new battles, skipping the cutting up stage because he was more of an on a more of a time constraint as he had to get back to Ross without raising suspicion. He poured all of the sulfuric acid into the barrel, tightened the lid, and then drove back to Brighton. When he got back to Brighton, he rushed up to where Roz was staying and told her that her husband had been taken ill in Crawley and that he needed her to come and see him immediately. While she 
did this, she was obviously worried about her husband. So as soon as Roz walked into the workshop, John picked up the revolver, shot her in the back of the head, killing her instantly. Like always, he took any expensive jewellery and belongings that she had on her, put her body into the barrel right next to where her husband's body was dissolving. He filled the second drum with sulfuric acid, tightened the lid, and then went off for the weekend as Archibald and Rosalie Henderson's body remained in the workshop to dissolve side by side. When he finally returned to the workshop a few days later, he decided it was time to empty out these barrels. But now he had to figure out where he was going to do that. He couldn't do it in the front because there was houses and too many people would be able to see it. So he had to do it around the back, which was a bit more industrial. Possibly a construction area, so less prying eyes. In the middle of the night, John took both barrels out to the back of his workshop and emptied them into the yard. The following morning, he grabbed all of the stolen belongings, took them to the pawn shop and sold everything. Now, rather disappointingly, John only made around £200 from pawning off all of these things. They weren't quite as expensive as they first thought. John went back to the Brighton Hotel where they were staying and paid the bill of both of their rooms, stole all of the belongings in the Hendersons had taken on that trip and he pawned off all of that and got some more money. Somehow, John also managed to forge a load of documents and hand over all of the Hendersons' assets, such as their properties and businesses, over to him. I don't know how he did this without many questions asked, but he did. When friends and family did come in asking, though, especially Rosie's brother, as he was very concerned about where his sister was, John told him that they had gone to South Africa and they were there for an abortion and they were going to be there for a while to hide out until everything is blown over. Now, this sounds very far-fetched. However, the Hendersons were quite a religious family and they came from religious families and they didn't want to inform their families that they were going for an abortion because it's very frowned upon. So John told them they were away to South Africa, but told Rosie's brother the abortion story because he knew that he would want to stick up for Ros and he wouldn't go and tell their parents the reason they were in South Africa. And so he went along with the lie, thinking he was being a protective brother. Also, mind John is a very charming, very convincing and very persuasive guy. So people would eat out of his hands. Think Ted Bundy. After selling all of the Henderson assets, John pocketed just over £200,000 in today's money again. He also got their car and dog, which he kept because he bonded with the dog. Like before, John went back to spending money like it was going out of fashion. And this time, the money only lasted him just over a year. By the beginning of 1949, John was in debt with the hotel that he lived in and he was behind on his rent. And he knew that he needed a lot of money fast. So what else is he going to do? He's going to set up a murder. So as he's living in Onslow Court, the folk living there around him are middle-aged and old-aged, mostly retired, and they are very rich. It was very strange for John to be there, as he didn't really fit in, as he was only in his 30s, and so folk wondered where he got this money from. As like I said earlier, it was mostly old money. However, with him being so young, it also came with his its advantages. He was attractive to all of the widows, both romantically attractive, but also, you know, attractive in the way that they want to talk to him, know his situation, how did he make his money, and also, remember, very charming. So with that, 
This is how he met 69-year-old wealthy widow Olive Durand Deacon. Olive was the widow of a very well-known solicitor in London named John Durand Deacon, who had made a lot of money, which she inherited when he passed away. And that's when she went to retire in the hotel. Olive really liked John and would sit with him in the bar at times. She would have tea with him quite a lot in the evenings and they were slowly becoming friends. One day, Olive decided to drop into conversation a new business idea that she'd had to pass the time, which was for a false nail company, kind of like acrylics. And she knew that John had a workshop and so this is why she went to him. And he, of course, said he could help her. On the 18th of February 1949, John invited Olive to his workshop to go over some rough plans of the false nail business. And so as you would be, Olive, she was very excited. She got all dressed up. She put on her best jewellery and she headed to the workshop. When Olive arrived, John, John did his usual routine and laid out the paperwork for these plans that he had and then shot Olive with the revolver in the back of the head, killing her instantly. Like all, um, like always, he robbed Olive of her belongings before disposing of her body. Now that John had more time than he did with the Hendersons, he actually took his time and apparently went back to what he did with his very first victim, William, and slit Olive's throat and drank a cup of her blood. John then dragged Olive's body into one of his 40-gallon oil drums. However, before he put all of the acid inside, he decided to take a lunch break where he went to a tea room down the road, ordered poached eggs on toast and a cup of tea, and he then sat there and spoke with the woman that ran the cafe for about an hour. When he was done, he then went back to his workshop and continued the god-awful disposal of Olive's body by pouring the acid into the oil drum, tightening the lid, and left his workshop as the body was left to dissolve. Like before, he then went and pawned off her items he stole. With regards to his coat that he took, though, this had some blood splatter on it, and so he took that to the dry cleaners first and then went back home to the hotel and paid off all of his debt. That was all he could pay, though, as he didn't have enough money for his next month's rent, and so he knew that he was going to have to make more money already as he was never going to get away with signing over all of his assets or anything like that onto himself. John quickly realises that he's kind of messed up doing all this, as there's now a person from his hotel missing. He was friends with this person and the police are going to now ask questions. John gave himself a couple of days to collect, to, sorry, to collect himself and sort out his next move, and he went back to the workshop and emptied out the oil drum, full of black sludge to get rid of the evidence. But... As he did at this time, he noticed that the body hadn't quite dissolved the way he wanted it to or the way that they usually did. This time round, there was chunks of Olive's body that hadn't properly dissolved. Full chunks of human fat, there was bones, there was a whole foot. Even with all of this, John was under pressure and didn't have time to get rid of all, those, all of those bits back in acid and so he continued emptying it out at the back of his workhouse and pretty much hoped for the best and that it would sort itself out. Back at the hotel people had noticed Olive had gone missing and she had a lot of friends. Her best friend Constance was very concerned as she knew Olive had plans with John that day at his workshop and so she went to confront him. John gave Constance a fake story saying that they were meant to meet up after Olive had gone shopping, but they never did in the end because she didn't show when he went to pick her up and she was probably just too busy at the shops and lost track of time. Now people were more concerned, thinking that she'd been missing for an even longer time. Maybe she'd gone missing when shopping, which meant anything could have happened. 
Like all narcissistic serial killers, John himself acted equally as concerned and worried for his friend. However, Constance, she was still on to him. The next day, there was still no sign of Olive, so Constance went to John and said she's going to go to the police and report her missing. John agreed with her and offered to go with her, and this meant that he could still be in control. After reporting Olive missing, the police began conducting inquiries at the hotel. They spoke with the staff, Olive's friends, and specifically Constance and John, since they seemed like her closest friends and because those were the ones who reported her missing. One of the police officers, however, that went to conduct these inquiries got a pretty bad feeling about John immediately. Not only did he seem overly involved in the investigation, but she also thought that it was pretty weird that he was living there, being the youngest person. How did he stumble on so much money at that young age? So the police began looking into John and they began looking at his background, his job, previous jobs. And that was when they pulled up his criminal record and found out he had a very lengthy criminal past with all his fraudulent behaviours, scamming scenes. Not only that, the hotel staff even told police that John was struggling to pay his rent and that he was in a lot of debt with them up until very recently, when out of the blue, he manages to pay off a few months' rent all at once, which was rather alarming to police, considering Olive, who was a wealthy elderly woman who'd just gone missing, was John's best pal, and then all of a sudden he can afford to pay multiple months' rent all at once. Also remember, he is now known for previous frauds and scams, so the police were on to him. When the police asked folk around the hotel about John, they said that he ran a sort of engineering mechanics invention business, but nobody really actually knew what that entailed, apart from the fact that he had a workshop in Crawley where he spent a lot of this time. So with this information, the police went straight to the workshop, went inside, and they did not expect to see exactly what they came across. Inside, they found 40-gallon oil drums with watertight lids, the gas mask and all of the acid-proof protective clothes protective clothing. They found the massive steel bathtub, the pump that he used to get the acid from the container into the bath or into the oil drum. They found his revolver and a load of ammunition. They also found a dry cleaner's receipt. So they went to the dry cleaners to investigate and they produced a very expensive fur coat which belonged to Olive. Around this time, a missing person poster had also been put up around town to try and find Olive and a person came into the police station to say they think they know who did this. This was a pawn shop owner in Crawley who came to the station and they confirmed that John had recently been in and pawned a load of women's jewellery, which he showed them. The police then verified the jewellery with her family who confirmed the items did in fact belong to Olive. With all of this evidence mounting up and pointing fingers at John, on the 28th of February 1948, he was arrested by police and brought to the station for questioning. In a rather unexpected turn of events, John actually sat there in the police station and confessed not only to the murder of Olin Duran Deacon, but to his five other murders. The Archibald and Rosalie Henderson, William McSwan and Donald and Amy McSwan. He even admitted to more murders, nine in total. However, the last three, three victims that he confessed to murder couldn't be verified, so could have been a load of nonsense, as he was just waiting, kind of wanting the glory for murdering more folk than he actually did. The thing was that he couldn't even tell the police their full names or where they are or what they did. He said that he killed a middle-aged woman from West London and a man named Max, and he said he killed a Welsh woman, but again, no proper info could be given on these three victims, whereas with the other five, he was going into gory details. 
Now, why did John admit to these killings? Well, going back to his incorrect research of the UK laws, he believed that he was untouchable because he thinks from his research that he read wrong, that if there's been a murder and police can't find the body, that that means no one can be arrested for that murder because you can't prove that they've even been murdered if you don't have a dead body. Now, with the stupidity or sense of, you know, being better and smarter than everyone else in the room, he's confessed but doesn't believe he can be charged. And so John told the police... I've destroyed her, meaning Olive, with acid. You'll find the sludge that remains at Leopold Road, which is his workshop. Every trace has gone now. You can't prove the murder if there's no body. Even if there was no body, he could have been charged. However, they actually did have a body, which is what John did not realise. Whilst he was in police custody, they went and searched his workshop and they came across the sludge at the back of the place that still had a foot in it. So technically, they had a body. As John hadn't properly dissolved all his body, police had the foot, bone fragments, pounds of human flat, fat. They found a gallstone and olive's dentures. On top of all that, police also found a, a load of paperwork connecting John to every single one of the six murders. They found a bag handle of Ros Henderson's and a bunch of paperwork relating to the McSwans and their properties and finances. Police have connected John to all six murders and clearly at some point John realised this and that he was more than likely to go to prison. And this is where the death, in the 40s sorry, where the death penalty is still in play. And so John decides to switch it up a notch and to decide to fake insanity. He knew that his two options were either fake insanity and be in a psychiatric hospital for the rest of his life, which would most likely be Broadmoor, with no freedom and he could be found guilty and hung. So with regards to the insanity part, was he really insane? Most likely not. However, this is where we go back and mention the whole drink in the blood of his victims. Was this actually done, or did he just say that he did this so that he could plead insanity? No one really knows, and the only person to know that would be John himself. In his trial, John pled not guilty to all of his murders despite a confession by reason of insanity. He said that he was mentally unstable and didn't mean to commit the murders. He said that the reason for these murders goes way back to those recurring nightmares that he used, used to have when he was a child, where he was forced to drink that full cup of blood that was raining from the sky. He said that he'd stopped having these recurring nightmares when he was still very young. However, when he'd gotten into a car accident in the mid-1940s, when he was in his mid-30s, he began having these nightmares again every single night. And he felt as though it was a message. It was just all too convenient that he got into a car crash just as the murders started happening. And now he's suddenly having these nightmares again. Ultimately, this insanity plea was believed by very few people. And a lot of people saw straight through him. And that he committed these murders for money and to live a life of sorry and to live a luxurious lifestyle that he wanted and not because he was mentally unstable the jury, jury deliberated for just 15 minutes which is really really short but they were so sure in their answer which was that john haig was guilty of all six murders and that he was to be executed john haig was executed on the 10th of august 1949 at the age of 40 and that is the John Hague story. I feel like I did know bits of it, but I actually didn't know he was executed. Yeah, it's executed. so wild when we still tell cases that people are executed. Eh? 
yeah it, and this is in the 40s as well not that long ago but is long ago i had a feeling this case was more sooner i don't know if i'm thinking of somebody else possibly there's crazy folk out there all the time 